back to Ask the Compound. Our email here is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. I'm here with the brightest man in America today, Duncan. <laughs> nice to see you. I admit it's not the best color combo. I should have probably looked in the mirror before I left the house today. I, I'm I'm not, I'm not one to talk about colors. I, I don't mind having some bright colors. I, think it I just got excited. You know, we were at the NASCAR museum for for the live recording, so I had to wear a NASCAR hat today. You, know. you do look like you're at a NASCAR event. Yeah. Uh, today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. I've been using Rocket Money lately. I am a set it and forget it kind of guy when it comes to finances and other parts of my life. Like last night, I got home pretty late. I was on a trip. And I got an alert on my phone saying, take the trash out. I would have forgotten because they come really early in the morning to pick up the trash. And so I like alerts. And the cool thing about Rocket Money that I've been using it is it gives you these alerts all the time. Hey, there's a there's an unknown transaction here. It's a pretty big one. Make sure this is legit. And it, I get probably one or two of those a week. And it's it, most of them are fine, but some of them could be like a, an erroneous transaction. Uh, it's kind of great. And it also talks about upcoming recurring payments. So I got I, I still... I like to feel like the 90s sometimes, like the, the pre and post internet era. I still get GQ magazine. And said, hey, your GQ magazine is coming up. I like the like physical magazine. And it said your GQ magazine is coming up and the, the price is like $33 a year. And I'm like, that I can get it for like six. So I go in there and Rocket Money helps me. It's great. They try to lower your bills. Uh, Rocketmoney.com slash ATC to learn more. It's, it's a really great way to manage your money. And I think they're shutting down these other personal finance sites. So Rocket Money is like the last... Last one standing. Yeah, I, like I guess it. everyone else is giving up. You know, they can't do it as well. Uh, all right, let's do it. All right. First up. Wait. Today, so who's the NASCAR oh, driver on your head? So this is actually a Dale Dale Jr. hat. So uh, okay. it was like a throwback to one of his dad's cars, um, a Dale Earnhardt car that have a okay. sun drop. Sun drop, which apparently is a, a North Carolina soda. I never even thought about that, but yeah. In Michigan, we call it a pop. In North Carolina, we call it a soda. Maybe. I I think everyone calls it everything. A lot of people call it Coke. Like any any kind of uh, soft drink. That's a southern a thing. We call any sort of soft drink a Coke. Yeah, even though Pepsi's better, but you know. All right, just kidding. Agree to disagree. Okay. Okay. First up today, we have. Can you please explain why financial media personnel keep saying the sixty forty is dead, but they are not saying target date funds are dead? This is a great. This is actually a really good question because. And I've been kind of, kind of thinking about this a lot lately. It seems like the financial media loves to pour dirt on the 60-40. And I, it, a lot of it is recency bias. Last year was one of the worst years ever for a 60-40 portfolio. John, do a chart on here. These are the 10 worst calendar year returns for a portfolio com- compromising the S&P 500, 60% of which, and 40% in 10-year treasury, 60-40, rebalance every year. Going back to 1928, by my calculations, 2022 was the third worst year ever. And the worst year ever was in the Great Depression in 1931. Second worst year ever was also in the 30s in 1937. So that's a pretty bad year. This was even worse than the worst downturn in the 1970s. Maybe it would be worse than on a real basis, but that's pretty bad. The third worst year in 95 years. But I don't know. Bad things happen in every asset class and strategy. They're called risk assets for a reason, right? I don't, I don't think one year is is enough to throw a strategy out the window unless it completely blows up. So I think a lot of people like to say, well, the 60-40 is broken because bonds got killed and it's not going to work going forward and correlations are higher. So ditch the simple and go with the complex. I do think that's part of it, is that the financial media, complexity sells way better than simplicity, right? You get way more eyeballs by selling something that's complicated and saying the simple thing just doesn't work because, put put, put this other one up, John. So the media's been planning a funeral for the 60-40 for years. I wrote this piece in like 2017, and found all these stories going back to 2012 about why balanced portfolios aren't going to work anymore. 60-40 is dead. It's dead and buried. 
I even wrote a eulogy blog post for 6040 back in 2019. So it's, it's something that I think, it's just a stand-in for a simple portfolio because there, there's just not much going on with it. It's very simple. It's also important to note that I don't know if I've ever met anyone who actually has all of their money, 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and that's it, right? Most well, people probably that would actually be, that would become active trying to maintain that, right? Because it it's, changes it's, so right? much. Yeah, it's hard. But I mean, most people have some cash. They probably own some real estate. They maybe have some REITs or foreign stocks or foreign bonds or high yield or corporate bonds or munis or value stocks or momentum stocks or quality or dividends, whatever it is. There's all these other strategies. And I think that's, in that sense, most regular portfolios are probably more like target date funds than anything else. And the other thing is the difference is target date funds actually change allocations over time. And so I don't think they're as easy as a target because there is some activity going on there. So I think that that's the thing. Activity and complexity sell better for financial media. So it makes sense that the 60-40 is like the straw man or whatever. I also think we live in a world where pundits become famous for predicting a top or a bottom. Like this is the bear market. This is the bull market. This is the end. This is the beginning. It's It's got to be a point in time, right? This thing is just getting over with. It's going to fall off a cliff. This thing is just getting started. You're never going to hear a headline about like a Boring, diversified portfolio does well most of the time, but not all the time. That's not a very good headline, right? I, I, there's also this contingent of financial pundits who like to say that, listen, the only reason a 60-40 portfolio has worked so well over the past 40 plus years is because inflation has been falling and interest rates have been falling. And that certainly was a tailwind, especially the bond side of the portfolio, because you had such high starting yields. But I looked at the period of 41 years from 1981 to 2021, which is Basically, the top in rates, rates were falling most of that time and inflation was falling. We were in a disinflationary environment. And then I looked at the previous 41 years from 1940 to through the end of 1980. So John, fill this up for me. Returns were certainly better in the period from 1981 to 2021, 10.5% per year for a 60-40 annually rebalanced, which is just an amazing return. It's basically like the historical long run for the stock market. But 1940 to 1980 had almost 8% annual returns. So it was, it was worse, but it wasn't that much worse. And the, the biggest part was 10-year treasuries did almost 8% annually in the 81 to 2021 period. Bonds were only up 2.5% per year from 1940 to 1980. So if we look at the previous 95 years, Demodern has this website I use all the time from NYU. From 1928 to 2022, a 60-40 portfolio was up 8.1% per year. So it's not like that environment pre-1980 was that much worse. It was right around average, right? And the, the crazy thing about the 2022 period being the third worst year ever for 60-40, the 10 years ending in 2022, so add the nine years before 2022, and the average returns for a 60-40 were almost 8% per year. So even with one of the worst years ever, it still was, was pretty good. And I, I can't promise what those returns are going to be going forward because I don't know what stock returns are going to be. I don't know what interest rates are going to be. But we're in a pretty good place now because you can get four to six percent in your bonds, depending. Like we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But uh, if bond yields are, if bonds are yielding five percent, and the historical equity risk premium is three to four percent above bonds or cash, we're talking I don't know eight to nine percent for stocks is not out of the realm of possibility. So that's seven percent for a sixty forty portfolio almost. One with six percent junk bonds, you can get even closer to like nine percent, right? Yeah, I mean that those are more equity like. But so if you want it, that that'd be more of an equity like portfolio. I mean, you call it 60-40, but it's really 100. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's so me. I just, I, I can't guarantee what these returns are going to be, but you're in a better place now than you were before 2022 after you ripped the Band-Aid off. And so I just say, stop listening to the people who say 60-40 is dead. It's lazy analysis. Saying 60-40 is dead is like saying diversification is dead. And if that happens, then maybe 
just haul me out to and bury me. Because if diversification dies, I've got nothing to live for. Oh my God, this got real. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, I, it's, it's saying it, it's just lazy analysis and it has no basis in reality. 60-40 is alive and well. Honestly, it yeah, it makes me want to buy 60-40 more, you know? It makes me more bullish to hear everyone saying that's dead. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a st- sort of a, st- a stand-in for simplicity and it's an easy, it's like easy whipping boy. All right, let's do another one. All right, that question was from Jacob, by the way. So up next, we have a question from Billy. I know the running joke is that Ben is Mr. Target Date Guy, but in a recent episode, he mentioned that he rebalanced to pick up more small cap value. Is he a Fama French guy instead? I was wondering what Ben's portfolio for investing, not trading, looks like from an asset class perspective. Secondarily, how often does he rebalance it? A little hurt they didn't ask about my portfolio, but... (laughs) (laughs) We already know what it is. Oatly Oatly, uh, reported earnings today. 60% Oatly and 40% some EV stock. So two two questions in a row about target date funds. So I guess I am uh, my rep- reputation does precede me. I, I my first ever investment was in a target date fund. So that's where I get this reputation from. My dad helped me open up an IRA when I was got my first job. My first job didn't have a four hundred one k, and so I had to open up my own IRA and I put money in like a T row price target date fund. I think the only target date funds I own now are my kids' college funds for five twenty nine plans. So based on the stage of life where I'm at now, I'm a barbell investor. That means on one side. On the safe side, and my barbell is safety and risk, right? So on the safe side, I have a slug of cash for vacations and emergencies and stuff that comes up with kids and other intermediate-term goals that we may have. And the other side of that barbell is risk, and that's stocks, basically. So I have a pretty high talent for risk. All my long-term capital is invested in the stock market. I'm not going to touch most of it for decades, so that's 100% in the stock market. Now, I am a boglehead at heart, right? My biggest holding in all of my, any of my accounts is a total U.S. stock market index fund, right? Very cheap, market cap weighted. But I also like to diversify into other areas. So I do have a little Fama French. I have the small cap value piece. I have some momentum funds. I have some higher quality funds. And I have international stocks. And I, I diversify there too by some value stocks and small caps there. So I do have some diversification. The index funds are the biggest, like the building block. And then I, you know, have these satellites or diversification there. And I don't hold these kind of factor funds for outperformance or anything like that. And which is kind of laughable to anyone who's looked at them in the last 10 or 12 years, because none of those other strategies have outperformed. But I I just don't think market weighted index funds are going to outperform every single cycle. And so I have these other funds so I can rebalance into them and diversify and have these other parts of the portfolio that'll hopefully hold up well if and when the index funds don't do well. Um, I did mention that I, I, on recent Animal Spirits, that I over-rebalanced recently. I I have three main rebalancing strategies. One, I said in the opener, I'm a set-it-and-forget-it guy, so when I have 401k, that kind of account, I automatically rebalance. I have it set to do once a year on a certain date. I don't know when the date is. I set it, and I forget about it. Uh, The other one is if asset weights get too far out of whack. And that's usually in a Wait, what's nasty... the best day of the year to rebalance? I'm just kidding. I'm sure someone has that data. I, I, I've seen people look at it. It's like it's in April, October for tax reasons. For, I don't know. I don't think that uh, that that far into it. The other one is if, if asset class weights get too far from the, tar- from the target, if something really outperforms and something really underperforms, maybe I'll get in there. But that, that'd be happening in maybe like a bear market or like a r- rip-roaring bull market. 
and then another way is I last week I made a pretty sizable contribution to my SEP IRA. Bill Sweet would be happy with me about that. It's going to help my taxes. And I overrebalanced into some areas that had underperformed. So I used contributions to rebalance as well. So I don't know. I don't know if that having these other areas of the market will help my returns over time. But I do like the, the idea of making contributions to those areas. So I'm making more contributions to the places that have not run as high in recent years. Um, but I don't see the point of having an asset allocation if you're not going to rebalance back to target weights eventually. I think that's, that's the whole point. So I think a great litmus test for a lot of people for their investment strategy is, are you willing to double down and lean into the pain when it is underperforming? Otherwise, what's the point of investing it in the first place? Especially if it's something like an asset class. If it's an individual stock, I'm not picking on your stock picks, Duncan, but if it is an individual stock like you and you're averaging all the way down, I don't have as much faith in that strategy as I do for an asset class or strategy that is more automatic and rules-based in nature. Well, you know, I can't remember if it was you or Michael that recently said on Animal Spirits something about how holding individual stocks for the long run is actually almost certain to underperform for you as opposed to if the, you hold The probability goes against funds. you. Yeah. I have a, an IRA um, that I should show you. Definitely not sharing publicly, but that I, I got to show you that, um, that basically is data that you can use to prove that. No, I, so. I listen, I have a brokerage account at Robinhood and I have some stock picks. For, I basically stopped picking stocks. A few of them I've, I've, I've held on to. And they've, they've all done way worse than I would have just putting in index funds. It, it is probably a good reminder, and it's a, I've sized it correctly. But yeah, that's the thing. Like the, the longer your holding period in the stock market, historically, the better your chance of seeing gains. The longer your holding period for individual stocks, the worse the probability is that you will actually see gains, which is kind of hard to, to reconcile yeah. in your brain. I never knew that so many stocks could become penny stocks, you know? It, 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 the, the part of it is mostly that it's a lot of big stocks that carry the day and, and make up the bulk of the returns. It doesn't mean other stocks can't do well, especially over certain time periods, but it's just over the very long term, most stocks don't do as well as you'd assume. Right. All right. Next question. All right. Up next, we no have No more a target date fund questions today. Yeah, no more. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, okay. Up next, we have a question from Rick. There's been a bull market and bond questions on the show, so I thought I would take a stab. Now that yields are higher, I want more fixed income in my taxable account. We are retiring in the next five years. Treasuries and T-bills seem like a no-brainer, but what, what about the tax implications? Corporate bonds have higher yields, but is there a difference in how those bonds are treated tax-wise versus government bonds? Okay, so we got, we got kind of like a good cop, bad cop question here between investing and taxes. So I'll be the, I guess I'm the good cop, the bad cop will be the tax guy. Let's bring in Bill Sweet. Talk about the tax side of things here. Hey, Bill. Coming to live from New York City today, gentlemen. How's it going? Good, good. Sorry, I, I uh, had you muted there for a second. It's all good. Yeah, it's yeah. because I wasn't wearing a, a fruity purple shirt today. Yeah. So <laughs> Devil's got stayed home. So. You, yeah, you guys are the good cop, bad cop. Duncan is bright, <laughs> Bill is yeah, black. I do like this question because we've been seeing a lot of question of, of comparisons lately of people saying, listen, if I can get 6% in corporate bonds, why would I ever invest in the stock market? If I can get 8% in high yield... And I think if you're doing that in a tax-deferred account, that's that's an okay apples-to-apples comparison, maybe. But if you're talking taxable account, the way that taxes on bonds and stocks are treated is much different. So I think you have to be careful about that. And I think for most people, especially if you're approaching retirement, you want those bonds to be used for spending purposes or income. or So you don't want them in a tax-deferred account, unless it's just for a portfolio over the long term. So uh, what do you think the breakdown of bonds is by a tax 
tax perspective? Because it, it, that changes the, the equation greatly, right? Yeah, you make some great points, Ben. And, uh, you know, typically if you're going into retirement, you are trying to focus on, on income. Uh, and that's a great point. However, bonds have this annoying feature where they're getting taxed at ordinary income. A lot of the conversations we're having here on the show do deal with capital gains. So let's talk a little bit about how different bonds get taxed. John, can we pull up our first chart, please? Um, let's just take a quick look at how corporate versus treasury versus municipal bonds. Those are the three types of bonds you can probably go out and, and hopefully those are the three flavors that are available to you. You're, you can see there by the chart, you're exposed to both federal and state income tax on any corporate tr- uh, bonds that you're, that you're purchasing. And so, yes, those come with a higher yield. However, you are looking at the proposition of higher tax, and we're going to do some math for you. We're going to do some bond math and let you know what that looks like here in a minute. Moving on, treasury bonds uh, come state tax-free, which is awesome. If you happen to live in New York like I do, me and and Duncan here in New York and Connecticut, uh, maybe not so much if you're in Michigan, certainly in California, pretty high-tax state. However, you do have to pay federal income tax on your treasuries, or you can look at state-issued municipal bonds. And if you're buying a municipal bond issued from the state or municipality that you happen to live in, you get this triple tax exemption where your federal, state, and local taxes are free if you're buying an in-state bond. And so that's how those break down. Uh, John, can we flip over to chart two, please? I, I like you... the table, Bill. That was oh. good. Before we get into the next yeah. one, it, it is interesting, like the, the treasury part, part of it. I don't think a lot of people realize that, like no state tax. Yeah. A lot of this is, I mean, you've said this in the past, usually when you retire, your tax rate will go down, hopefully. So mm-hmm. for a lot of people, maybe that helps the equation a little bit. But I think ha- having that, that matrix there is a good starter for people. If you have a really ultra high tax rate, it, it could change the way that you allocate your bonds or it should probably. Yeah, precisely. And I think you do have to think about that, Ben, and, and great lead in, by the way, uh, you, you great, great header for me because you set me up and, and I'll knock him down. A lot of this depends on your I was a point guard in rate. high school, so I like to dish out the assists. <laughs> That's great. I got to see Victor Wembiana last night and he could have used a point guard uh, there for the Spurs. <laughs> so, uh, so let's flip over to chart two, John, and take a look at how these bonds uh, go from a pre-tax yield. So you, in the left column, a pre-tax yield, let's say 6% for corporates, 5% for treasuries, 3.5% for municipals. These are roughly approximate to where yields are today, and this is not investment advice, so please don't act on this. Um, However, what I did, Ben, is I broke this down and said, look, if you're a low tax rate, if you're paying 12% versus a mid-tax rate paying 24 and let's say 6% for a total of 30 versus a high tax rate, let's say close to 50%, which is where folks are in New York City and California at the higher end of the income spectrum, what happens to those pre-tax yields as they filter through the tax equation. And instead of framing everything in a tax equivalent yield, I want to talk about the yield that you take home, right? Because we do not eat pre-tax returns. So this is this to me is very important. You can see for, let's say, a middle uh, middle tax payer, a corporate bond, a pre-tax 6% yield gets cut to about 4%. A pre-tax 5% treasury yield gets cut to 3.8%. And municipals, again, assuming you're in state, just stays at that 3.5% because they're completely tax-free. So more or less, you can make that decision. But what I want to highlight there is the rightmost column. At some point, it begins. The higher tax rate are, the more uh, the more tasty, the more the more uh, the more beneficial that tax free yield is for municipals. So it really does depend. I do think you have to sit down and think about this. Basis points are probably going to make a huge difference, huge difference. But if you're in the highest tax bracket, your yield gets cut in almost half. And I think you so. Do you'd have say to take you'd probably say if if you want to own corporate bonds 
and you're in high taxes, you should probably be owning those in a tax-deferred account. Otherwise, it might not really make as much sense. Uh, I, I think so, very generally. Yeah, that, 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 would, be, that would be my take uh, because ultimately it's all tax-deferred anyway. And furthermore, again, we're talking about ordinary income tax rates, right? So compared to capital gains, compared to dividends, you're, you're paying the highest tax rates very quickly. And so, yes, I think for corporate yields, for folks in a low tax bracket, for, for tax equivalents, it makes a lot of sense. Municipals, if you're in a higher tax And with, with treasuries, your T-bills are included in those, they're free from state taxes, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people have been pouring into T-bills lately. I yeah. want to get on munis, but Duncan, let's read question four first. Yeah. I think that actually is a muni question. And we'll get to some Great point. The tax is. equivalent stuff, which I think is important. Great question from Rick. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk municipal bonds. Okay. Uh, you've written a lot about bonds lately, but not munis. I'm looking at a muni fund with a yield of 3.8%. If I hold this in a taxable account, that's a pretty good deal, right? How do I think about munis in the context of other bonds in a taxable brokerage account? So I think, psychologically speaking, munis are kind of difficult for people because you have to think about that tax equivalent. The way you showed it building your matrix was you put them on, this, on the level playing field. But if you inverted it and did it the other way, you could say, well, the nominal yield in treasuries versus munis might be similar too. But for a lot of people, that's a phantom yield. Because the tax stuff for a lot of people happens later and doesn't happen right now. And so they look and say, why would I take a three and a half or four percent yield in munis when I can get five or six percent in these corporate bonds or treasuries or whatever? And it doesn't make sense. So it's hard to put those on equal footing. But as you said, especially if you're a high in a high tax bracket, the municipal yield on a tax equivalent basis might be even better. Yeah, could not agree. And that would be the great title for a new Star Wars movie, The Phantom Yield. I do like that. Thing. I'm going to have to I'm going to think about that. Um, but but I, as you guys might imagine, we have a chart about this. So, John, can you pull up chart three? So this just illustrates the point. Uh, and again, that, that we were making before and, and you know, the, the sort of connecting the dots uh, between the questions. Jim, Jim is question, you know, why would I consider municipals? Again, it's, it's those higher tax rates. That to me is where it starts to make sense. In that you can see there, if, if we if we kind of again look at pre and low and mid and high tax yields, how that plays out, municipals are going to be dead even, but the the tax bite takes a higher uh, higher hit out of those higher yield uh, corporates and treasuries, and so that that to me is where that flip happens. And Ben, I I think municipals really start to make a lot of sense to me roughly around the thirty five percent tax bracket. That's when the game changes because it, around there, assuming you're in a high tax state, that that's when your tax rate is pushing forty percent, forty two percent all in, and that's when that thing. Flips. And if you kind of look at this from just from the outside, from, from an outside basis, the, the type of account, the type of title makes a lot of sense. You would not, for example, Ben, want to own municipal bonds in a, in a tax-deferred account, in an IRA or 401k, right? right? Because you're, you're accepting a lower yield, but you're, you're getting this tax-deferral benefit there anyway. So Jim's question is spot on, and this is why I think looking at this in, in, in not just the, the tax equivalent angle, but where you're going to hold asset location is so, so important when you're doing asset allocation. So I feel like we're getting closer to like Bill's rules of thumb. We have like a Roth IRA cutoff. We have a Muni bond cutoff. We're getting there, right? Depending again, this you have to actually know what your tax rate is, which a lot of people probably don't. But it, there is a financial planning element to owning bonds that you probably didn't have to think about before. And again, I think this is probably more important for retirees or people who are yes. using bonds for income. If you're if you're using bonds in a 401k plan because you want diversification or you don't want to take as much equity risk, this this equation doesn't matter. Then look at the nominal yields. But I think for a lot of people, and especially retirees, they are looking at these. And I think that the handoff probably couldn't have gone better for retirees. Yeah. They, yes, people were complaining in the 2010s because you know yields were low and bonds weren't doing much. And then you had 2022, what we talked about earlier, where bonds got killed. But you had stocks that totally picked up the slack and more than made up for the bond returns. And now you have this situation where you can de-risk the portfolio and you have these nice yields. And 
you just do have to be a little thoughtful about the way that you that you implement it because yeah. you don't yeah like to your point you don't want to have the wrong asset location and then eat into a lot of your yield unnecessarily yeah we've been in this you know higher interest rate environment higher inflation environment been for i don't know 18 24 months at this point i got to be honest with you i'm still adjusting uh i came into this uh, industry in 2007 you know fresh out of the army coming into tax and i from that point forward right we've had sub two percent yield sub two percent inflation so i'm still getting used to all this and that's why jim i think your question is very appropriate and this is the type of thing that the world changed right in the last two years so i think your portfolio should potentially change along with it yes and, and i i think you probably just have to be a lot more thoughtful about how you allocate your fixed income as well. It's not a one-decision asset class, really. Yep. You have to kind of think through. And maybe for some people, it's a little bit of corporate bonds and a little bit of treasuries and a little bit of munis, depending on where they have their money. But you just have to think through before you pull the trigger there. Right. Amen. Duncan, what are Oldie bonds paying these days? Uh, probably a lot. 27%. <laughs> probably, gotta, that's got to be a high probably, yield. Probably a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hey, they, I mean, they technically, the earnings wasn't, wasn't terrible. Okay. But I'm glad we talked about this in terms of taxes because, again, people who are making these stock versus bond comparisons, it really depends where those assets are located. You can't yeah. just say, well, bonds are paying six, so why would I – if I could take, get six in the stock market, I'd be fine. That It's a totally – what did you say yesterday to me? Bonds, you pay taxes now. Stocks, you pay taxes later. Yeah, and that brings up a good point about compounding, Ben. Not not only are you looking at a higher uh, interest rate, right, or a higher tax rate for ordinary income, which most bonds are taxed at, but furthermore, there's some advantages to things like dividend yield. Assuming again, you're you're comparing apples to apples, which you're not. But in the case that you are, and assuming you could predict the future path of stock returns, uh, stock gains are, are 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 usually deferred, right, because you're paying capital gains. But you choose that moment when you sell and realize those gains. And so, if you're able to defer that two to five to ten years. That compounding effect all happens within your portfolio relative to the bond income that you're paying tax on right now. And so even if you're reinvesting, let's say, into a bond fund, assuming you're, 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 you're compounding that way, you're still paying tax at a higher rate with a bond fund today. It's not apples to apples anyway, but yeah, there, there are some built-in advantages to tax deferral that come from stocks and come from tax-qualified dividends, which you're paying at lower tax rates. Duncan, Cliff in the chat says that you should be drinking a Coors based on your NASCAR gear. I think yeah, that actually well, fits. It's, I'm, yeah, I'm drinking this tea, but I think kind of looked like okay. a beer can maybe. But yeah. He's a man of the people. One day, one yeah. day we'll be, right. that, that'll be the show. We got one more. Okay, last but not least, we have a question from John. I was wondering if you could comment on the nuances of purchasing a home in a very high cost of living real estate market like New York City, San Francisco, L.A., uh, I'm not sure how expensive. Did you get San that on the first is. try, Duncan? VHCOL there. It took me a second, but yeah. At first, I was thinking like an EV toll, but yeah, this is different. <laughs> um, okay, I'm uh, I'm coming from a more affordable area, and I feel like the game in these places is vastly different. The biggest thing I struggle with is how much to put down without feeling foolish. Am I crazy for putting sixty to seventy percent down on a New York City property? I'm envisioning modest mortgage payments due to the sixty to seventy percent down payment, uh, which could put me into a building where others uh, only put 20% down or less have to be earning at least two times or more what, what we would. It's a little confusing, but I think I get what they're saying. Uh, the usual net worth statistics of not being so tilted into real estate don't seem to apply in very high cost of living areas. If we put 70% down, our net worth breakdown would be something like 60 to 70% into our primary uh, residence real estate. Good question. I, I, first of all, I think there's like an imposter syndrome thing going here where hmm. if I like put 60 to 70% down and other people there aren't because their salaries are different, uh, I think that might be part of what we took out. Uh, I would get rid of that immediately because if you can afford to put 60 or 70% down on a New York City 
house, apartment, condo, whatever, you're, you're in a pretty good position, right? Uh, do you agree, though, that, Bill, that the high cost of living areas are a totally different ballgame from a real estate perspective? I don't necessarily, yeah. But my observation here with most real estate investors generally, Ben, is that they hate paying taxes more than they like making money. And real estate involves this tax deferral. I was just talking about a minute ago with, with capital gains and deferrals. But to me, this isn't necessarily a tax question. It's a concentration question, Ben. And that that's sort of what you're. I think you're getting at. If you are dumping 60 to 70% of your current net worth into a single uh, property in a single city, in a single building, literally, uh, a lot could go wrong with that, right? Uh, we, we've lived in a world most of my career where real estate prices go up and they go up and they go up and everybody thinks that's probably going to happen going forward. But I think the the risk you're taking on by putting that amount of capital uh, into one single asset to me, to me is a lot. And yes, you do get a lower mortgage. You do pay less interest. You are going to have a lower payment and maybe therefore you can afford to live a little bit grander, but it's a lot of risk. It's a lot of risk to take on, Ben. Uh, what do you, my what do you whole think? thing about my whole thing about risk is that there are like necessary or unavoidable, and then there are avoidable or unnecessary risks. And like we can't, you can't. If you want to make money, you can't avoid something like volatility or there's there's some drawback. And I think put, dumping all of your money into a single asset is an unnecessary risk, especially something like that. That's a, the roof over your head. And if you can afford a down payment that high, you can probably afford the mortgage payments as well. And so <laughs> there's and there's nothing to say that if you hold back and you just do a thirty or forty percent down payment. There's nothing to say that you can try it out for a little while and see how you can afford it and then dump the money in in a few years potentially yeah. and pay the principal down. Yeah, yeah. But if it's, you put all the money in, then you're going to have to borrow against the place to get it out. Or so. it, It's much yeah. harder to spend that place after the money's already in there. So I don't see the 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 rush to make such a huge yeah. down payment, especially if it's going to concentrate you so much. It just seems unnecessary to me from a risk perspective. Yeah, I, I think I generally agree, Ben. The, the, the other thing I'd, I'd sort of counsel anybody thinking about this on is that primary real estate, especially if it's a personal loan, jumbo loan or not, that is one of the few places, Ben, where you can apply leverage effectively, I think, as a taxpayer. And that there's this giant subsidized mortgage complex out there, right, that, that's keeping real estate interest. Yeah, you would, you would never, it would never be wise to take that much leverage out in the stock market. Yes. Right? But in the housing market, we freely tell people to do it, <laughs> have at it, right? Right. And, and effectively, what, what you're doing in that scenario, in, in some form or fashion, is you're transferring some of that risk to a bank, right? And so that, to me, is one way to potentially de-risk. Ben, you hit the, the, the other nail on the head, which is that it's not a one-way street. If you get frustrated at that higher mortgage rate, you can always pay, pay it down right? You can always refinance down the road with cash. That's always an option. And it, it more or less keeps some powder dry. And so I, I think I think I would consider that. And I've no, I've always just considered that leverage play to, to begin one of the few places that if you could go out and buy a million dollar building and only put, let's say, $200,000, $300,000 down, that to me seems like a pretty good deal. Even if my monthly payments are higher, the additional cash that I'm holding back on and let's say investing in municipals, right, to earn some, some income, some revenue with, I can use that to help decrease the mortgage, right? And the so it, the, it ends up being a leverage play. The only argument I could see for actually doing this kind of thing would be, listen, mortgage rates are 7.5%, yeah. and I'm going to put it down, and then if rates go back down to 5 I'm going to cash out refi and take pull some of that back out. That, that's that, that's a tough, that's like a market timing kind of thing as well, yeah. so that, that's that's difficult. But you'd, you'd have that built-in equity where you could do True. that if you wanted to or take out a home equity line or whatever if rates fall. But that that's a timing thing, and if yeah. you really need the money, it it could be that banks don't want to 
give you a loan yeah. at that time. So th there, that's a little bit of a riskier strategy. But there is a tax angle I do want to mention in that there are three itemized deductions that are available to individual taxpayers for their primary residence right now, right? It's uh, it's, it's charitable contributions. It's uh, property taxes, but that's limited to $10,000, which in a city like New York or uh, VHOCL, yeah. I think yeah, that thank, was the thanks. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're astronomically high. Um, but the third is mortgage interest, right? And so effectively, if you're able to tax deduct your mortgage interest being paid, uh, that effectively reduces the borrowing rate, right? So, so if you're if you're at a thirty percent tax rate, that brings your tax equivalent uh, mortgage interest yield from seven percent to five and a half, right? And so maybe that's not you know worth writing home about. That's nothing compared to two years ago. But we live in the world that exists now, and that is something. Uh, once you account for a standard deduction, that that you can take advantage of potentially. Yeah, good good question. I just, I it just seems unnecessarily risky to me to put that much in if you don't have to. I think I generally agree. Yeah, make the bank. Duncan, <laughs> I, I think I generally agree too. I don't have a strong opinion. Duncan I, is like a chameleon. He goes from F one guy to NASCAR guy so seamlessly. Hey, right? I mean, you know, they're they're cars. It is impressive. Yeah, <laughs> motors, engines. Yeah, it's good. Four wheels. Okay. Uh, great questions this week, as yeah. always. We appreciate everyone. No Roth area yeah. conversions. What am I even doing here? I know nothing. We uh, we went we went another direction. Uh, thanks as always for the questions. Leave us a comment on YouTube. Thanks to everyone in the live chat. As usual, number our email here is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. And oh, and thanks to Rocket Money again. Yeah. Rocket Money. Appreciate it as always. For all my free alerts. Yep. <laughs> see you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 